This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. for creating such a mocking, a place of Tyre of and what makes this place so special that, that everybody here is able to come and feel comfortable, which leaves me no doubt that this will definitely be one of the stops. Mitzvah Mashiach should come still today, still this morning. Rashi tells us in Sukkot that if Mashiach comes on Tishabav, he comes before Chatzais, we don't have to fast anymore. If he comes after Chatzais, we have to finish the fast. It's a little extra incentive. Try again to come quicker. Tishvah Tavshin Pei. Well, I said it. It's another year, and here we go again. Sitting on the floor, wondering why we're still sitting on the floor, thinking we did something different than last year, which was different than the year before. Last year, it was pointed out that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, and expecting different results. Which leads us to think about ourselves because we're still here. We laid out some strategies last year. Obviously, they didn't work. We have to try something new this year to finally end this. So, if that's you, are we insane? Are we just going to keep on doing the same things? You know, we're not the only ones to think that this Gaulus is very long. My great 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 grandfather, the Noyim Alimelech, the Reverend Amayach was once walking on Shavasa Thomas. It was a very, very hot day. You know, it's a long time. And he was walking with two of his Talmidim. Of Moshe Leif Sasever and of Rami Shua Heschel. Later the after of. And it was so hot and they were fasting and they passed by a river. So they turned to the Rebbe, to Reverend Amayach, and they said, Is it okay if we cool ourselves off a little? It's so hot. He said, Sure, go ahead. I'm going to wait here. They went to the river. They cooled themselves. They came back. And they saw the Rebbe just sitting there as if he's in a trance. And they got nervous. Maybe he's having heat stroke. Maybe something's wrong. And they went over to him to, to tap him on the shoulder. And he took their hand off. He just sat there a little longer. And then he shook himself. And they said, Rebbe, you okay? He says, yeah, I'm okay. I took a little trip to Shemayim just now. You know what I saw there? He said, earlier today, there was a young woman who came to her of, and she said, you know, I'm not feeling well. Do I have to continue fasting today? See, so he asked her a few questions, and he says, maybe if you have the strength, you should continue. She said, okay, fine. 
Two hours later, she comes back to the Rav. She says, I, I really don't think I can continue. Can I break the fast? He says, look, if you have to break it, you have to break it. Did you try lying down? She says, no. He says, look, maybe if you can lie down, maybe you can continue the fast. If not, you should break it. She went home and she lay down. And unfortunately, she passed away. She couldn't handle it and she died. Her neshama comes up to Shemayim, to the Bezim Shemalo. And before they started judging her, she said, I want to bring the Sanhedrin to Adin Taira. What do you mean you want? To, we're judging you. Who do you get to judge? So what do you mean? How could they go <coughs> and create such a tightness and such a long hot day of the year? It's not safe for us. Oh, good question. They brought in the Anshikanzagadaila. And they answered that question, how can you create such a tightness, such a long tightness and such a hot day? And they looked and they said, You're right. We have to tell you that when we created this tightness, we didn't dream it would go on for so long. We thought the goal should be maybe 52 years, maybe 120 years, 70 years. Who dreamt it would go on for so long, for so many generations, up until the generations where people are weak? We never intended it, we never thought it would go so long. And we're still here. So what happened... And what can we do to get out of it? We know the Chaba writes, It's better to say fewer of the kinnis with Kavana than to say a lot of them without Kavana. We're not here just to daven up the kinnis. The tour says this applies to everyone, men, women, and children as well. So what are we doing? It all started many, many years ago. We know the Miraglim were sent to scout out Eretz Yisrael. And Moshe Rabbeinu sent them, hoping they would come back with a good report, and they came back. And we know they gave a bad report in Eretz Yisrael. They said, the people there are so strong. Even a Kodesh Baruch Hu can't win the war for us. And the people were extremely frightened. They went back to their tents, and they cried. And they cried, what's going to be? Says the Gemara in Tainus, Aisha Yaim Erev Tishabav Hayo. It was Erev Tishabav that day. Omer Lev Kadosh Baruch Hu Atem Bechisim Bechish Lachinam Vani Kavei Lachem Bechil Adairus. You cried for nothing that night. I will give you for all future generations something to cry about. Which is difficult to understand because, first of all, this has been going on for over two thousand years. It didn't work. If it doesn't work, try something else. If you're trying a certain punishment it's not working, you try something else. And the other question is, this sounds like a very spiteful parent. This sounds like the parent who when the child is crying says, you're crying? I'll give you something to cry about and you smack the kid again. Is that what Hashem's doing to us? Hashem says, you cried for nothing, I'll give you something to cry about. How are we supposed to relate to that? And it first explains what's going on over here. He says, Tears are the sweat of the soul. Which means that we all have emotions, happy emotions, sad emotions. When we're happy, we laugh. When we're sad, we're quiet. Sometimes our emotions are so great we can't express it anymore. A person can be so happy. He's so happy he's starting to cry. He said, why are you crying? I thought you are happy. He said, I'm so happy these are tears of joy. I can't express it anymore. Tears come out. And when a person's sad, he's so sad, 
that he can't express anymore and tears come out. And that is the sweat of the soul. Hashem says, when, you, when the Moraglin came back and said that you can't win it, even Hashem can't win it. You know what they were saying? They were saying, on your own you can't win it. And you, clients, should have said, Hashem, you told us to go in, so we're going to go in. You told us to fight, so we're going to fight. I, we can't win? That's your problem, Hashem. We're going to do what you told us to do, and that's it. We could all only do what we can do. But when we reach the point that we did all that we can do, what do we say then? Do we say, that's it, it's not going to work, it's not happening? Or do we say, we tried all we can, and now Rabbi Yisrael has to do it? And that's the Kayak of Tears. Hashem said, I gave you such a powerful tool called tears. Those are the tears that when you can't accomplish anymore, you use the tears, and the tears finish it up. And you went and used the tears for the wrong thing. I'm going to give you the opportunity to use the tears for the right thing. And throughout the generations, we are constantly being faced by different things. And it reaches a point where we can't deal with it anymore. And we start to cry. At that point, the Shem is watching. What are you doing right now? Are you crying and saying, this is ridiculous, this can't continue, I can't handle it anymore, it's not going to work? Or are you saying, Hashem, I get the message. I did all I can do, and now you have to do it. And that's the power of tears. And that's what Hashem is giving us the opportunity to rectify. Zimor tells us, <coughs> And therefore all the bad things that happened to us have its source on Tisha B'Av. The first Beis was destroyed. The second Beis Hamikdash. If you go through our quote-unquote modern history, the Spanish Inquisition, which was August 2nd, 1942. World War II, which... Really, it was an outgrowth of World War One, which started by the three weeks, and really, they actually declared war. It was on Tishabov. So that's what happened. So what are we supposed to do? We're going to bring Mashiach because Rabbi Feinstein couldn't bring Mashiach, but we're going to bring Mashiach. Chavetz Chaim couldn't do it, but we're going to bring Mashiach. With the Balshamtiv, with the Vilna Gaon, they couldn't bring Mashiach. The Kivayger, but we're going to bring Mashiach. Rashi. Rashi cried on Tisha B'Av. He didn't bring Mashiach. We really think that we can do what they couldn't do. The Talmud and the Chassam Seifer would say that the Rebbe, every Arab Tisha B'Av, closes himself in a room, and nobody would see what he would do there. And one year, one Talmud wanted to see what's going on, snuck into the room and he watched. He watched as his Rebbe sat on the floor and he cried and he cried. And he cried copious tears and he took a cup and he collected those tears. And he filled up half a cup of tears. He filled up half a cup of tears and then when it came to the Susan of Sekas, he took his bread and he dipped it into the cup of tears. And he said, I've eaten ashes like bread and mixed my drink with tears. And he actually dipped it into the cup of tears. Years later, this Talmud moved to Eretz Yisrael near the source of living in a little hovel facing the Harabayas. And it was a few days before Tisha B'Av, and this incident with this Rabbi Chassam Sefer came to mind. He said, you know, I'm going to do the same thing. And he sat down on the roof of his hovel, of his apartment, looking at the Harabayas, desolate, and he has his cup ready and he starts to cry. And nothing comes out. And he's trying and trying and nothing comes out. And he says, wow, 
my Rebbe filled up half a cup with tears. I'm sitting by the Mokim Amidash and I can't even get a tear out. And at that point he started to cry. But he wasn't crying for the loss of the Vesa Amidash. He was crying because how far he felt that he couldn't even cry for the Vesa Amidash. There's a family hiding from the Nazis one of the last safe places to hide, which was the sewer system. And unfortunately, the Jews, a lot of Jews went and they hid in the sewer system together with the rats. The Nazis wouldn't go down there, but every once in a while they would open up and they would drop down sticks of dynamite. They would send down dogs. They would go down sometimes. At one time, a lookout came running down. The Nazis are coming, the Nazis are coming, and everyone knew they had to be completely still. And there was a family there with a little boy, a young boy, six-year-old, and he knew he knew how to cry. And the Nazis were coming, they heard the footsteps coming and going, coming and going, the dogs barking, they're all quiet. And finally, after about an hour, it was quiet, the Nazis, Imachimam, left. This little six-year-old looks up at his mother, and he says, Ma, could I cry now? She said, now you can cry. And he burst out crying. That boy was able to cry, but he wasn't permitted. We are permitted to cry. Are we able? Could we do it? The Sassamas tells us that no Jewish tear dissipates. No Jewish tear just goes away. Hashem collects every single genuine Jewish tear and He places it in a cup. This is not only for tears of terrible things that we hear that goes on, but even for a little girl walking down the sidewalk and she trips and she cries, that tear is also in that cup. Because if Mashiach was here, that wouldn't happen. If Mashiach was here, I wouldn't stick my hand in my pocket to take out a quarter and a nickel comes out and I have to stick my hand in again. There'll be no problems. Even the small little ones. It says in Sarsamah, that Taka the Tzadikim of the previous generation filled up that cup. And maybe in the times of the Tanaim and Amarayim, they filled it up halfway. And the Gainim, the Rishayim, filled it to the top. But we know a cup with a liquid, even with a liquid, it could be heaping. It can be higher than the sides of the cup. And then all you need is one more drop. One more drop goes into that cup, and it will spill out. And that is what's expected of us, to have one more drop, to put one more drop into that cup. We could try, cry one more sincere tear and that cup will overflow. The Shiva of Gifter, that's all, would often say that we cry for the basement this all year. It's very hard to cry for it on Tishabab if you don't cry for it all year. The difference is all year we walk around with it inside, but on Tishabab it bursts forth and we cry uncontrollable tears on Tishabab. Do we cry uncontrollable tears on Tishabah? But Gifters wants to be Menachem all somebody. And when it came time to leave, he got up and he starts to say, Mokim Menachem Eschem. But then he choked up and his eyes began to well with tears as he said, And then he burst out crying as he got the words out, We're all very sad when we go to Menachem Oval. 
and we say that possibly that means that we're leaving. But do we think of what we're saying? Do we cry? The Milchas Alazar, before the war started, he wasn't well. He was admitted to a hospital in Budapest. And on Shabbos, he wanted to have a minion. He asked the doctor if he can have a minion. So Dr. Professor Rosenthal, who he knew from before, he says, you know, it's really against the rules, but I'll let you have it on two conditions. Condition number one, only ten people. You cannot have a big minion. Condition number two, it has to be completely quiet. This is a hospital, it's completely quiet in this hospital. He said, fine, they had the minion. Friday night, before Mecha, he starts to say, how do? And he says to the words, Yerimi Gula Hashem, Mashikolam, Miyatsar, Maartsai, Skiptsam, Mizrak, Mar, Bitsafan, and Mayam. Let those who were deemed by Hashem say it, that he brought us in from all directions, and he burst out crying, loud cries. Then Matta Shabbos, the doctor came, and he says, Rabbi, I thought we had a deal. You said you weren't going to cry. You weren't going to be, you're going to be quiet. He says, Doctor, I thought you said this hospital has to be quiet. Because of course, he says, last night it wasn't quiet. He goes, what do you mean? He says, down the hallway, there was a guy screaming and yelling the whole night. So Professor Rosenthal looks at the Rebbe and says, Rebbe, are you serious? That person is a soldier in the army. He stepped on a landmine, he lost both his legs. He was screaming in pain for the whole, the whole night. Well, how can you compare that? So the Rebbe looks at him and says, if you have any idea the pain a Yid has when he talks about the word in Gaulis, you would realize it's no different and the pain bursts forth the same way. And therefore we have to keep that in mind not to throw away the good because of the perfect. If we can't sit and cry the whole morning, we can cry a little. If we can't cry a little, we can get out one tear. First kin we're going to be saying is kin above. A lot of the kin is written by Velazar Kalir. Velazar Kalir, who he was, either the son of Rishim by Yechai, or he was a Velazar ben Aruch, according to the, the Rashba. He starts off with the word Shavas. Shavas, Shavas to many, Shemunu Ivrai. The world came to a standstill. What does it mean the world came to a standstill? It wasn't that we had the same world, just we don't have the base of Mikdash. We had life with the base of Mikdash, and now we have life without the base of Mikdash. Similarly, you speak to people who survived the Holocaust, it was before the war, and it was after the war. You can't compare the two. Shavas, everything came to a standstill. He says, I wish I could have back the Nevoah of the Navi Zechariah. At least his Nevoahs were a little better. His Nevoahs were, were a little more uplifting. But then we say, the These things I weep, I cry. What do you mean these things I cry? I cry for one thing, the Churban of the Beis Why is it Lashem Rabim? <coughs> the Gemara tells us, because there are many things we were crying about. The shedding of the blood of Tzadikim for the Churban Beis Hamikdash, for the cessation of the Kuna and Malchus, for no more Lima Taira, and for living without the presence of Hashem. Continues on, on the, by, the, by the shore of the Euphrates River, where the pious ones were mutilated. What happened over there? The Vufanetza was sailing down the river, and he sees the Levim, 
And he says, oh, those are the people who sing for their God in the base of Miglash. Let them play their instruments for me. And when the Levim got the order to play the instruments for him, they went and they bit off their thumbs. So they shouldn't be able to play for Nebuchadnezzar. That's how close they were, that's how much they felt the tragedy of the base of Migdash. And it continues, I cried out for relief, but they crushed me. We were traveling, and our Arab cousins saw what was going on, the Arabians, and they came and they gave us bread. You need bread, they gave us bread, salty bread. Of course, salty bread makes you very thirsty. So then they gave us these canteens, these leather pouches, full of water. We opened it up to drink and start to gulp it down. Unfortunately, there was no water inside. It was hot, stale air. And many, many thousands of people died, the Gemara says, from that alone. Continues, continues how they gave us pebbles to eat. It says, pebbles to eat? Who eats pebbles? And again, the manager explains that the Navi was warning us over and over and over again. Yechaska was telling us there's going to be a destruction. Prepare. We didn't prepare. So Shem told him to take some concrete action. He took some some kalim. He says, you better take utensils with you. But they didn't listen. And now when they were traveling, after many days they had the opportunity to stop and make some bread. They had to dig a hole in the ground where they mixed their water and the wheat and the flour. And of course the pebbles were inside there and that's the bread they ended up eating. And the kidney uh, concludes... However, Ram Hashem, don't forget, after all this, we are still your nation. What happens if after all this we just you can't cry? People have all sorts of troubles, they don't relate it to the base of Migdash. Or they don't have troubles, Baruch Hashem. They don't know what they're missing. We've spoken of many different tactics in the past of how a person to bring himself to realize what's going on. I want to share with you one of the most emotional midrashim I've ever seen. That if we can't cry because we have nothing to cry about, and if we can't cry for our friends, for our neighbors, for what's going on, let me read you a medrash, Echo Rabasi, Aleph of Aleph. Belel Tishabov, Nifnas of Ramavina Lebeis, Kredish HaKadashim. It was the night of Tishabav. And Avram Avinu walks into the Kedesh HaKadashim. Achazu HaKadosh Baruch Hu Hashem sees me, goes over and he takes Avram Avinu by the hand. And he walked with him up and down the Kedesh HaKadashim with Avram Avinu. Finally, What brings my beloved to my house? Thanks for the visit. What can I do for you? Omar of Ramavina responds, Rebaini, my master, Bonai, my children, Hechenem, where are they? I don't see my children. Where'd they go? Omar Lay, Hashem responds to him, Chatu, they did a verse. And? They did a various, the Gleason Ben Omais, and had to exile them among the nations. Ramavinu hears this. Omar Lehi, Lehoyo Behem Tzadikim? 
Hashem, among all my children, there are no tzaddikim to save them? They're all sent out? Lo yohayvam tzaddikim? Omar Lei Hashem responds to him, they would rejoice at the downfall of one another. Hoyu Hussein says that they rejoice at the downfall of each other. And Avram had no response. Avram realized that Hashem was right. Can you imagine the pain that Avram was feeling? Bonai, where are my children? And he accepted that answer from Hashem. But if we can't bring ourselves to cry for what Avram Avinu was going through, then maybe there's one more thing we have to think about. That's a frightening Gemara in Chagiga Dafhei. The Gemara tells us Hashem has a room called Mistarim. And in this room, Mistarim, Hashem cries. He cries because of the greatness that Klaiso used to have and how the greatness was taken away from them and given to the nations. The Gemara asks, really? Hashem cries? By Hashem there's only happiness and joy. How could you say Hashem cries? The Gemara explains, Hashem has inner chambers and outer chambers. Indeed in His outer chambers, He's happy. In His inner chambers, He cries. The Gemara says, really? How could you say that? The Pasuk says in Yeshaya, the Yikra Hashem, Hashem calls, Hashem Tzavakes B'yayimahu L'bechi V'lamispad. Hashem cries out on that day to come and to cry and to mourn. If Hashem calls out, it means it's in public, it's in His outer room. And for the Gemara, Shani Churban Beis HaMikdash. The Churban Beis HaMikdash is different. Once a year, Hashem cries and He tells people, come cry um, in public for the Beis HaMikdash. Explains of Meister Shapiro. People have different types of friends. You have a friend you like to go and have a good time with. You have a friend, you have a good joke, you want to call him up and tell him. You have a good story, you want to tell him. You have a friend you get aces from. You also have a friend who you cry with. If something sad is going on in your life, you call up your friend, you tell him what's going on, and you start to cry. He cries with you. Says the Gemara, Shani Churban Beis Amigdash. The day of the Beis the Churban of the Beis is different. Hashem says to His beloved ones, to His children, Come, come cry with me. Let's cry today together. Rav Nassim Tzvi Finko, in the last year of his life, he was very, very ill, very, very weak. And there was a Talmud whose wife was very sick. And he came to his Rebbe, he says, Rebbe, for my wife. Since he couldn't respond, he was lying on his couch, couldn't move. The Talmud saw the Rebbe was moving his lips a little, and the goddess he put his ear to his mouth, and the Rebbe said, I have no kayak. You say to Hillam, and I'll cry for you. And the Talmud sat and said to Hillam, watching the Rosh Hashiva cry. You can cry for somebody. And Hashem says, Shani Today, my beloved ones, my children, come cry with me. If we have no other reason to cry, let's cry, because Hashem is crying, and we're going to cry with Hashem. Shabbat Surah.
Perhaps the most important kinna, as this kinna was written by <coughs> Yirmiyo himself. Yirmiyo, the Navi, cries over the king Yeshio. Why did he cry? Because as we're going to see in the kinna, the death of Yeshio was the last thing stopping the Churban Beis Amigdash. With his death, there was nothing stopping it. 
the kid that goes through the episode of what happened. Menashe was Yeshua's grandfather, was a king. Menashe was a terrible Baal And he wasn't content with just doing a Vaidazara himself, but he put a Vaidazara everywhere. Every city, every town had a Vaidazara. Even in the base of Migdash, even in the Kaidish Kedashim, he put a Vaidazara. There was a Vaidazara everywhere. Later on, he had a son named Amon. Amon was a disgusting person who followed in the ways of his father. And even though Manasseh tried to do tshuva later on, he did not, was not able to eradicate the Vaidazar and his son took over Amon. But his son Amon was such a bad person, such a not nice person, that his own guards assassinated him after two years, which left his son to become king. And that was Yeshio. Yeshio was only eight years old when he became king after the death of his, death of his father and grandfather. During the 18 years as he was king, he never saw a Sefer That's how steep Klaisho was in the Vaidazara. And one day, Yermio's father, Chilkiah, who was the Kain Gadol, was doing repair work in the Beis Hamikdash. And while he's repairing work, fixing, fixing things up, he found the Sefer Torah. And he opens up the Sefer Torah, and it was opened up in Dvarim, Curse is the one who does not keep the words of this Torah. And he went and he brought it to Yeshio, and Yeshio for the first time saw a Sefer Torah. He was 25 years old. He was king for almost 18 years, the first time he saw a Sefer Torah. He was so taken by it. And he says, We have to do it. We have to do what it says in the Sefer Torah. And he set out, <clears throat> he set out on a mission to eradicate Avayda Zara from Eretz Yisrael. And he did a very good job. He got rid of almost all the Avayda Zara. The king tells us, one day, the king of Mitzrayim, Parin Chai, sends a message. And he says, I want to come and I want to pass through your country to fight Amai, to fight another nation. I don't want to walk all the way around. I want to go through your country. Why don't you let me through? And he said, no, I'm not letting you through. He said, why don't you let me through? He said, I'm not letting you through. Yirmiya told him, he said, no, you really have to let him through. He says, why do you have to let him through? The Posse tells us that the Cherev Leisaber Ba'atzachem when Eretz Yisrael is doing what they're supposed to be doing, not only will we not have war, but even a sword won't pass through, which means another army won't have to walk through our country. We have no desire, we don't have to do it. The Kinnah tells us that he was making a mistake. Davak by Chait Leitzani Hadar. The Chait of Leitzani Hadar was sticking to them. It's very hard to eradicate Navera. Asher Komu Acher Delas Lizdar. Yeshio was very thorough. He sent guards everywhere to everyone's house to see if they have a Vodazara. And they would come inside the house and check. And he wouldn't find any Vodazara. What he didn't know was that they were so desperate to have their Vodazara, they would take it, they would slice it in half, place them on the insides of their doors. So when the door was open, you didn't see an Vodazara. But when the door would close, they would have their full functioning of Vodazara. And when the guards came in, they couldn't tell. 
And therefore, Yeshio didn't believe there was any Vedasara. But Yermiyo said, no, you have to let Pyrenechoi through. We're not at that level yet. So Yeshio went and he did what unfortunately a lot of people do. You get a psaq for one rav, you don't like it. There's always another rav in town. And he went to the Nevi'ah at the Chulda, Nevi'ah, and he asked her what to do, and she said, no, don't let him in. Don't let Pyrenechoi in. There's no Vedasara here. He didn't let Pari Nechai in, and Pari Nechai says, if you don't let me through, I'm going to come and fight with you. He came, and he fought. As the Kinnah tells us, he told his, he told his uh, soldiers to aim all their arrows directly, directly at Yeshio, and they aimed their arrows at him, as the Kinnah tells us, it hit them, One after another, he was hit with 300 arrows, and they pierced him like a sieve. And then, of course, he was dying. And as he was dying, Ruach Sefasav Hivtsami Pihu, some words came out of his mouth, Sadiku Hashem Kimarisa Pihu. Hashem is righteous because I disobeyed what he told me through the Navi. Because at the end, he said, Hashem, who at Sadiq, Hashem is righteous, because that Hashem pushed off the Khurban another 22 years in the Sfus of each letter of the Olive Bays that he used to say Hashem Hu Tzadik. <laughs> but the reason why he cried so much, Yemiyo cried so much over Yeshio, because this was the last opportunity to stop the Khurban. And now that he was killed, the Khurban was for sure going to happen. Sometimes we also have lost opportunities. If we don't see what can happen, what can come from our own actions. A Bachar once came to the Skalena Reva, the previous Zikar Rebbe, and he says, Rebbe, what should I do? I have a terribly eight Sahara. So Rebbe said, Gavaldik, you're alive. He says, Rebbe, I'm losing. I'm losing the fight. He comes to me with these thoughts, and, and I don't kick him out right away, and it's terrible, what should I do? So the Rebbe said, we say in Davening, in the fourth Halukah, Yalzu Chasidim B'chavayid. The Chasidim should exalt in honor. When? Yeranenu al-Mishkavaisim, they should praise and sing on their beds. Now, if this is talking about davening, you're not supposed to daven lying down. What does it mean when we say in davening every day, Yeranenu al-Mishkavaisim, they should praise on their bed. Said the Rebbe, this bed is their deathbed. Somebody who lived their life the way they're supposed to, Yeranenu al-Mishkavaisim, when they're on their deathbed, they're going to be praising Hashem. Because they're going to be happy with what they did. Bacharol, he tells them. He says, one day you're going to be on your deathbed. It should be in a long time, but one day you'll be in your deathbed. Are you going to be happy or not? Think about that. And that will help you fight today. So you shouldn't lose opportunity. A few years ago, right here in Muncie, in a nursing home here in Muncie, there was a fellow who used to go visit his mother in a nursing home all the time. And one day, there was a new patient in the nursing home, and he sees this fellow coming to visit all the time. And one day, in a yantif, this fellow came with his whole family to visit the grandmother. And this fellow sitting there, calls him over. He calls him over, he says, my name is Beryl. He says, oh, Beryl. He says, you know, I survived the Holocaust. He says, oh, wow. He says, I'm not religious. He says, let me tell you what happened to me. He starts telling the story how he was a young teenager 
He was 17, 18 years old. The Nazis came, they took away his whole family, they murdered his father in front of his eyes. Some of his siblings, they took away his mother and other siblings, and he managed to run away. And I was on the run for months and months and months. Nothing to eat. Every time I thought I had a safe hiding place, they'd find me, they'd catch me, they're chasing me. I managed to escape. At one time, it was already two and a half days, I had nothing to eat. And my hideout was, was, was found. I was running away. I ran into a town. I couldn't take it anymore. I knocked on the door of the first house I saw. This Polish couple opened up and I begged them, please take me in. They didn't want to take me in. I said, please, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. They liked that. They took me in and they gave me a lot of chores to do. After two and a half weeks, they called me over and said, okay, you have to leave now. It's too, too, too dangerous. I said, please let me stay. I'm working. I'm doing whatever you want. Is he going to do whatever we want? He said, yeah. They pointed to their daughter. They said, we want you to marry her. Said, what? We want you to marry her. Obviously, she was not the brightest girl around. Not the best looking girl around. He said, you want to stay in our house? You have to marry her. I said, I know what to say. You to marry a shiksa. He said, you know, let me think about it a few days. Just like buying myself some extra time. After a few days, I told myself I cannot go back. And I said, I'll marry her. And I married her. And then for the next two and a half years of the war, I have to run. I wasn't frightened. I got to live there. Then the war was over. We moved here, we moved there. I ended up in the United States. My wife passed away two years ago. I stayed married there. And I have two children who are going. And that's my story. And that's what he told this person. Chas Vashon, we're not judging anybody. But such opportunity lost. Such opportunity lost. A person has nothing left in this world. There was another fellow once, who after he left Kailal, he made it with his friends, were always going to have a shear in the morning. And he came to the shear all the time. Until one day he didn't. And the next day he didn't. He stopped coming. His friend said, what's going on? Why aren't you learning anymore? He said, I'm busy, I'm busy. He would learn here and there until about 15 years later, one day he shows up for the early morning shear. Of course, he comes inside. His friends say, no, can't sleep. What's going on? What's wrong? He said, I don't want to waste time. I'll tell you after Davani. Well, it's serious. After Davani, he tells me, he says, you know, a little while ago, I had to put my mother in a nursing home. And I'm a good boy. I go visit her at least twice a week, if not more. This is going on for weeks. Well, yesterday I went to visit my mother. And there was some construction. I couldn't go into the floor. I had to go to a different floor. I was walking down the hallway. And I heard screaming coming from a room. As I walk by the room, I hear screaming. I look, and one guy, there's three people sitting by a window, three old men. And one guy screams out, 84, 84. The other person looks at him and says, 93. The other guy looks at them and he goes, crazy. It's 101. And they're screaming back and forth, 83, 101, back and forth. So I walked over to him and I said, you know, maybe I can help out. I'm an outsider. Maybe I can help out. One guy looks at me and says, you young whippersnapper, what do you know? The other two guys says, look, we've been arguing for two hours. Maybe he knows what's up. So he said, you know, we sit here every day after breakfast until lunch. We sit by the window, we're by a busy street, we count the cars that go by. And we see how many cars go by after two hours. So 101 cars go by, and this guy doesn't know how to count. 
He says, I don't know how to count. You don't know, it's 94. And he starts screaming again. The guy hears this, he walks out. Goes to visit his mother. He finishes visiting his mother, he has to come back down the same way to that floor. And again he hears screaming. He says, I thought this was an old age, so I'm not a crazy house. He walks by the room, and he sees two old men sitting there screaming at each other. They each have a Gemara open by their bed. And they're screaming, a pshat and a taisvis. And that's what they were doing. He was standing by the door, he was so mesmerized, he didn't notice. When the, the nurse came in with the lunch, these two men said, just put it down, put it down, we're busy. And he continued fighting over the taisvis. I walked into my car, and my hands were shaking as I started the car, and I said to myself, where am I going to be in 20 years from now? Am I going to be sitting fighting over a taisvis? Or am I going to be sitting fighting over how many cars drove by in the past two hours? If you don't take care of things now, then you lose those opportunities. The most genuine kinah we have, the Yikaini Yirmiyol Yashio, is the crying over lost opportunity. Yikaini Yirmiyol Yashio,
Remember what Titus did inside Sholav He unsheathed his sword and he entered upon him, and he stabbed the Parechus that is sewn on both sides with tremendous Chachma that had the same picture on both sides of it sewn in once and he stabbed it what the first and, base, and second base of me both have in common is that what the grain destroyed we know were the stones of the base of Migdash. the Shekin already left it Chassam Shefer points out how happy we should be that Kosh destroyed the base of Migdash. because if it wasn't the base of Migdash, it would have been us because Baruch Hu withdrew a Shekhinah and the gang took out their fury on the stones of the Beis HaMikdash. The Gemara tells us that the first Beis HaMikdash, Nebuchadnezzar was busy conquering the world and he wasn't sure he had two places left. He had Amrain and he had Eretz Yisrael. He didn't know which place I go to. So he took out some arrows and he started to throw arrows in all different directions. And wherever he threw the arrow, ultimately the arrow would start to fly towards the south, which was towards Eretz He says, oh, obviously this is a simon, I should be going to Eretz and not to Amman right now. So he arrived to Eretz Nebuchadnezzar sends forth his general Nebuchadnezzar with 300 mules. And each mule was carrying a load of axes, each axe with hardened metal on it, and they were supposed to be used to break into Yerushalayim. The general of Uzzaradan tells the men to start breaking in. They take the axes and they start to break in and break. But they couldn't get in. They were banging so hard the axe would break. They would take another one, the axe would break. And they started to go through hundreds and hundreds of axes trying to break. And they couldn't break anymore. And finally they realized this is not going to happen. This is not going to work. And therefore, might as well leave. As he's about to turn around and leave, a Basco comes out and he says, No, you'll be successful. He hears a voice that says he'll be successful. He looks in the wagon, there's one axe left. He picks up the axe, he tosses it at the gate, and the gate collapses, and they're able to go in. He saw that, and he sees a boy walking by, a Jewish boy. He says, Tell me, Jewish boy, what did you learn in school today? He said, I learned that Hashem defends his nation and that he punishes whoever harms them. And Abu Zaradin heard this and he realized not such a good thing for him to do and he ran away and he became a ger. Nebuchadnezzar, however, did not change. Nebuchadnezzar remained as cruel as he always was. In fact, later on, after the conquest, when he was sailing down the river, he saw a whole bunch of groups of people walking. And he turns to his general and says, Who are these people? 
says, Your Highness, those are the Jewish slaves. We just captured them. He says, They're slaves? He said, Yeah. He says, Why are they standing straight? Immediately the order went out. They took barrels. They filled it up with sand. And every Jew had to carry a heavy barrel of sand on his back, looking down while he's walking, just like an animal. For no purpose, serve no use, just for cruelty's purposes. Unfortunately, that's not the only time that happened to us throughout our history. But that's what was brought by the Horban. The beginning of Kinnitazayin, we switched the focus from the Horban Bayis Rishon to the Horban Bayis And Rav Lazar Kilir describes in this Kinnah of what Vespasian and then later his son Titus tried to do. Vespasian, at the time, was a general who set up siege around Yerushalayim until he got a call that the king in Rome died and the Senate voted him king. He went back and he left his son, Titus, there to do it. And that's how the king starts. Titus comes inside and he stabs the Parachus and he sees blood coming out and he says, Ah, I killed, I killed the Jewish God. And he starts to bang on the, on the Mizbeach. He says, You're a tough king, let's do battle. Let's do battle. And he slashed the Parachus. And then he set the Basilish on fire and it went up in flames. 97,000 Eden were taken away as captives to be used for entertainment and immoral purposes in Rome. 1.1 million were killed at that time. As the Gemara says, the, bloods, the streets were flowing with blood. It wasn't like today, you can just shoot people, you take your sword, impel the person, pull it out. It was a job. And there was blood everywhere. Our blood. There's so many bodies, you couldn't even see the ground. But they were upset with their success because they couldn't find any more Jews to kill. The Gemara says they were hunting Jews like you hunt rabbits. A bunch of people walking, they would see one Jew, they would chase him, looking for one person left to try to go and kill him. On the way back, as was said before, Titus was on the boat, on the ship, and the storm came, and Titus tells Hashem, you're very tough on the water, you did the mabel, you got power that way, why don't you find me on land? Immediately the Gemara says... The storm went away. He came on land. When he came on land, says a small little insect, a gnat, that's what I learned, went up his nose. And it bothered him tremendously. One day he was walking and there was a Jew there, a, a silversmith, banging on his metal. And that distracted the gnat. So the king said, I want you to take your hammer and your anvil and walk behind me, banging it all the time to distract the gnat. But of course, after a few weeks, that didn't work anymore. Ultimately, he died, and when he died, as it says, they opened up his brain and they found the gnat, how large it grew sitting on his brain. Before he died, however, he gave instructions that he should be cremated and his ashes should be thrown all over the place. This way, the God won't be able to judge me. He won't find me. Throw me over the oceans. He has no control over the oceans. Later on, he had a nephew, famous nephew, Unclus. Unclus' mother was Titus' sister. And Unclus wanted to become a Yitz. He goes over to his uncle and he managed to conjure up his uncle's soul, Titus. And when he came, he says, Titus, my uncle Titus, tell me, so who's on top? Who won? He said, the Jews won. The Jews won. He says, really? Should I convert to be a Jew? He says, no, don't convert to be a Jew. He says, why not? If you told me the Jews won, why should I convert? He says, it's too hard. They have too many rules. Don't do it. He says, tell me, Uncle Titus, 
What was your punishment for what you did? He says, what was my punishment? What is my punishment? He says, what is? He says, every day I'm taken, they burn me, they burn me alive, then they take my ashes and they spread my ashes out. And then the next day, they reconstitute me, Hashem makes me again and He burns me again, and again and again, and that is what Hashem does to me every day. Kinnis continues, how could it be that when our ancestors, not of an Aviyah, went into the Kayesh when they weren't supposed to go, they got burned. And this Russia goes inside. He goes inside with the Zaina, nothing happens to him. Obviously, Lazar Kli was saying it in a way for our benefit to realize that when not even a view went in, there was Kedush in the Beis HaMikdash. When Titus went in with the Zaina to the Kedush HaKedash, there was no Kedusha left. The Kinnah continues, A Pesach Harabayas, Hechel Avai, start to come to the opening of the Harabayas to destroy it. He had four generals. And each one had one section of the country, of the city, to destroy, north, east, west, and south. The general to destroy the western side was Panger, General Panger. He wasn't able to destroy it. As much as he tried, he couldn't destroy the Pesel, Hamaravi. He came back and the king said, No, Tita said, it was a general at the time. Did he destroy it? He goes, No, he didn't. He goes, Why not? He says, Your Highness, later on, people are going to say, that the mighty Roman army destroyed the base of Middash. And people would say, really, what was it? It's like a nice little house somewhere, maybe somebody's headquarters. They're not going to realize how great and majestic it was. What a tremendous feat it was. So I left one wall. So for all generations, people can see of your great conquest. So Tita says, it's very nice, but that wasn't your order. So let's see who you really had in mind. I want you to climb on top and jump down. If you live, that shows that you did it for the king's honor. If not, then you're dead. Well, of course, he jumped and he died because he did not do it definitely for the honor of Hashem. Then he told Vespasian to go. Um, to, when Vespasian finished, he minted a coin, a very well-known coin. We still have copies of it today. On one side is a is Vespasian, and the other side is a Jew sitting down and says, Judea capta. Either a Jew is a captive, or really in Latin, a Jew is kaput. He's finished. Titus went and he erected uh, a monument to himself, the Arch of Titus, the Arch of Triumph. It's still in Rome today. Famous story, the Pontificerov was once there in Italy, and he was on the way back to the airport, and he asked the driver, he says, how far is the Arch of Triumph from here? He says, not far. He goes, let's make a stop there. They stopped there. If Kahaneman or Shivan Panovich gets out of the taxi, he goes over to the arch and he starts to shake his hand. He says, Titus, Titus, where are you? This is all you have left, this little arch. He says, I'm going back to Eretz Yisrael and I have Yeshiva with hundreds of Bachram. Tell me, Titus, who is victorious? And I love to look at the picture somebody once sent me of a guy with spray paint, spray painted on the arch of Titus, Am Yisrael Chai. <coughs> So who's still around and who's not around? And that's what we say. 
It ends the famous story of the three ships they filled up with kids, with boys and girls to bring to Rome for immoral purposes. As Akina says, they didn't know what to do. They don't want to be immoral. And they dive into Hashem, what should we do? And Hashem gave them a flash of Ruach HaKadosh. They all agreed to jump into the water to kill themselves. And when the boys saw that the girls did this, the boys did the same. They jumped in to kill themselves, not to be used for immoral purposes. And they went and they sang as they did this. And what did they say by all this? Even though all this is happening, all these terrible things, all this happened to us, but we did not forget you. Hashem, we still love you. We recognize it's all for our benefit. As painful as it is, we still love you. Not an easy thing to say when someone's feeling pain. And that these children said it. There was a couple, Avi and Dasi. They were married for many, many years. And unfortunately, they had no children. And they tried everything. They went to, to, to the Rebbe's and to the Kfarim and the doctors, everything. And they had one last doctor who they finally got into. And unfortunately, when they left the doctor, the doctor says, there's nothing we can do. They went on home, they stopped off by the Rebbe, and they cried together. And when they finished crying, Dasi turns to her husband in front of the Rebbe and says, you know, maybe it's time. He knew exactly what she was saying. They realized, let's face reality, maybe it's time to adopt a child. And they spoke over with the Rebbe, and they decided they're going to adopt. They want to adopt a Jewish child. And the best chance is in Eretz Yisrael. They flew to Eretz Yisrael. They met with some Askanim. They signed the papers. And said, okay, now what happens? Now you wait. How long do we wait for? You wait. You wait. So they flew back home. And they waited. Until one day they got a call. A few weeks later, we have a child for you. We have a baby for you. You can come and pick her up. They were so excited. They got on the plane. They flew to Eretz They went to the hotel. They freshened themselves up, put their stuff down. And the next morning immediately went to the office to meet with the social worker to get their new child. They come inside, and the social worker sees them. Hello, and they start to talk. And they sit down, and of course, they take out a stack of papers that they have to sign. It's like a mortgage. Sign, sign, sign. They're signing away. They don't even know what they're signing. They're signing. And after about 20 minutes of signing, the Dasi says, so where is she already? She says, oh, don't worry. She's in the next room. We're going to go to her. Just have to finish this paperwork, these formalities. They're finished. They're talking. And they finished all the paperwork to the side. And now the social worker takes out two pieces of paper. She places them down in front of both of them and says, I just need you to fill out this last paper. And it's very short. It says in it, write down the three things you love most. So, each take it down, they're looking at each other, each writing. He writes down the three things he loves most. She writes down the three things she loves most. And they finish. And the lady says, okay, just turn the paper over, sign it, and we're done. Turns the paper over, takes his pen, and he turns white. His wife looks and says, what's the problem? And he turns his paper back over. It says on the paper... With my signature, I swear that I will love my new daughter more than the three things I wrote on the other side of this paper. 
And the other side of the paper, he wrote the three things he loved most. He wrote Hashem, he wrote Dasi, and he wrote basketball. He looks at his wife, he says, how could I sign a paper that says I'm going to love my daughter more than Hashem? What we do is what we do. How we feel is how we feel. But to write that down, I can't do it. And the social worker says, what's the problem? He said, I, I can't sign the paper. She says, are you crazy? Sign the paper. He said, I can't sign the paper. She says, you're a fool, you're crazy. You know who's going to see that paper? Nobody. It's going to go to the bottom of the drawer. No one will ever see that paper. Just sign the paper. Your daughter's next door. He said, I can't sign the paper. He says, you don't sign the paper. You're never going to adopt a kid in Israel. That's for sure. You're crazy people. He looks at his wife. They both stood up and they walked out. Imagine the pain. They took a taxi. They made one stop. Merkeva Rachel. The one they feel they could connect to. And they flew back home. On the way home, they went straight to the Rebbe's house and they told him what happened. The Rebbe's sitting there, he's crying. And Abi looks at him and says, Was I wrong? Am I crazy? Was I wrong? So the Rebbe says, I don't know if I can do what you did. But Hashem loves those who love Him. And nothing bad can come out of this. And that's what he said over the story a year later by the priest of his own son. Because we show that love to Hashem. And we say in the Kiddo, Kol basano. All this that comes to us, we don't forget you, Hashem. We love you, Hashem. Thank you.
Next skin we'll say is Kinnah Yud Zayin. In Techal Nanashim, Piryam, Oilai Tepuchim, Alai Li. If it can happen that women ate their own children, woe is to me. In Techal Nanashim, Rachmani, I see Ladim, Amadudim Tepachim, Tepachim, Alai Li. If compassionate women, we used to measure the children's growth every year. That's how much love they had for them. Can cook their own children to eat. This Kinnah Yudzayin, also written by Rav Lazar Kalir, is perhaps one of the most frightening of all the Kinnahs of what we read what happened to us. And each one, if we look at each Kinnah the way it's set up, it starts with the word Im. And then the next word starts with a Tuf, which spells the word Emes. In each thing, terrible tragedy that happened to us, we say MS, it's true, we deserve it. Until we reach the end, where there's a frightening and stinging rebuke to us in this kiddo. What happened was, kiddo says there was no food, and parents were actually eating their own children. Some like to think, Okay, the children were dead. They ate the children. That's not what the Mekinah says. Let us go and cook our screaming children. The children were screaming from hunger. The parents said, let's cook them so we can eat them. These were not evil people. These were people who were starving. The Mekinah continues... If it can happen that people will eat the the flesh of their fathers and the flesh of their children, well, woe is to me. It tells us how there's a group of people hiding in one of the caves, and every day it's someone else's job to go out and find food. And one day someone's job is to go out and find food, and he's looking, he couldn't find anything. Until... He struck gold. He found the body. He was so excited until he realized it was the body of his own father. So he quickly drug a, ga- a grave and he buried his father and he came back and said, I didn't find anything. He said, how can you not find anything? It's your turn. We need food. And someone else says, I'm going to go out. And he went out and he came back with some meat. And everybody ate. And then the guy says, I understand. How did you find it? I looked everywhere. I didn't find anywhere. He says, ah, you have to know how to look. I saw something on the ground. I started to dig up, I found the shallow grave. I dug up that body, and that's what we ate. And he realized he ate from his own father. And to all this we say, Emes. Baruch Hashem, for most of us, this is the closest we get to not having food. A few hours without eating. It's hard to imagine what they went through. During the war, Rav Gustman, Rav Shiva Yisrael, he had two children. And you know, a boy and a girl. And one time they were in the ghetto, the Nazis came over, they grabbed his son Nair, threw him on the ground, and just stomped on him until they killed him. And then he walked away laughing. Rav Guzman buried his son, but couldn't, said Shiva, they had to run. But he took the shoes and he sold them. And he got food for his wife and daughter. They were eating it, they were very hungry. And she looks at her husband, he's stroll, why aren't you eating? He says, how can I eat this food? This food 
It's from the shoes of my son who was killed in front of me. And he couldn't eat it. And that's terrible. Such a situation. But to think that in the times of the Qurban, they actually ate their own children. How bad it must have been. You know, talk about now, we were shut down a little. A few saying how terrible it was. There's a lady, the sister, the sister-in-law of Ravine Kotler, Reverend Rishel's sister. She writes, she's still alive, she's Mae Vestrum, that when she was in the war, she was running from place to place. It was a Tukufa time, she was stuck in a barn. She had to hide in a barn for weeks and weeks. And there was someone who was supposed to bring her food. Sometimes they brought her, sometimes they kept it for themselves. She couldn't leave the barn. She had for company a goat that would go out by day and come back into the barn at night. She missed the outside so much, she would go over to the goat and hug the goat just to smell what, what, what grass and trees smell like. And she would get to take whatever milk was left that the farmer didn't take from the goat. She writes, one time she was so hungry. She was starving, she had nothing to eat. And she saw droppings from the goat. And she convinced herself, these are chocolate pellets that her mother sent her. And that's what she ate. If any way to connect with what the, what the kid is telling us of what it means not to have food. The kid continues on all these things, and each time we say MS, it's MS, it's MS. It was so bad that the Romans went and they would make the Jewish ladies nurse the Geisha kids. And when they finished nursing the Geisha kids, they would give them another one and another one to nurse till they had no milk left. Then they would go home and they couldn't nurse their own children. And these mothers would collapse of starvation and die, and the babies would crawl over to their mothers, trying to nurse from their dead mothers. And we say MS. We say MS all the way through until the last one. But the last kina, it doesn't say that anymore. There it says, V'im Yahari b'migdash Hashem kain v'navi le'mashmiyim. The MS is not there. You know why? Because the kina ends off. You're so quick to tell everybody all the bad things Hashem does to you, all the punishments you received. You're very quick to tell everyone, Hashem says. But somehow you forget to tell them what you did. You went and you killed the Novi Zechariah ben Yayada in the base of Migdash. That you forgot about. In Yohari ben Migdash, Hashem Kayin the Novi, that's not heard. Don't go around only saying what Hashem did to you and forgetting what you did to deserve it. And therefore we say MS. But there's another dimension to this. We say MS. Why is it that we dive into Hashem, we refer to Hashem as our Father? <clears throat> we all know that if you get in trouble in school, for most of us it's really not your father you want to come. Your mother's a lot more compassionate. Why do we always refer to Hashem as our Father, not as our Mother? Avinu Malkeinu. Why is Avinu? It's interesting that when we got out of Mitzrayim, we were taken out by two leaders, by Aaron Kayan and Meishu Rabbeinu. And our first Golis we were in, we were redeemed by Esther and Malka and Mordechai and Tzavik. hopefully in a few minutes, we're redeemed from this Golis, still before Chatzais, and we'll be redeemed by Elia Navi, and by Mashiach. Interesting, 
that Moshe, um, Aaron, and Moshe together spells aim. Mother. The qualities of both is mother. But the next qualities of Esther and Mordechai also spells Aleph Mem, spells aim. It was those character traits that saved us. And mentioned by the final gula of Eliyahu and Navi and Mashiach also spells aim. Indeed, that's what Avinu Malkeinu also spells his aim. The Midavu Tashem Avinu Malkeinu, we don't have the, the chutzpah, the gumption to tell Hashem, to ask Hashem to treat us like a mother would treat us, at least like a father. But we hint to it, Avinu Malkeinu, aim. And perhaps that's what we're saying here the whole time. The word aim, aim, aim each time. Hashem, we know we're wrong. We know what we did. But still treat us like a mother treats a child. Like a parent treats a child. But how is that? A parent can only treat a child that way, but we have to, we have a job too. We have to be like that child. We know, famous marshal of two brothers, Reuven and Shimon, and Reuven had to make a wedding. He had no money. Shimon was wealthy. He went to Shimon to borrow money, and Shimon ignored him. Get out of here. I don't know who you are. You're not my brother. Leave. <coughs> Shimon kicks him out. So Reuven goes crying to his father. And he tells his father what happened. A little later, Shimon comes to visit his father. And the father says, I don't know who you are. He says, Ty, you don't know who I am? I'm, I'm your son, Shimon. He says, listen here, I have two boys, Reuven and Shimon. If Reuven's not your brother, then how could you be my son? If we turn to another Yid, and we don't care about another Yid, we don't do for another Yid what we should do, how can we then turn to Hashem and say, Avinu Malkeinu, my father? And Hashem says, I'm your father? Then how come he's not your brother? And that is what our attitude has to be. And it's so simple just to turn off from somebody like that. There was a fellow who lived in Yerushalayim. He learned in Yeshiva in Ashdod for many, many years. Then he was in Kail there, and he was very close to his Rebbe. And then life moved on. He moved to Yerushalayim. He had his family. And he would go visit his Rebbe at least twice a year. He would go right before Purim, and he would go during Sarsim Echuva. One day... He was catching the bus to go to Ashdod. He runs to the bus station. He gets on the bus. And there's one seat available in the back. He runs to the seat. He sits down. He's all tired. He's sitting there. He takes out his Gemara. And he looks. The guy next to him, the, the row next to him, is smiling at him. And he notices that he's missing most of his teeth. So he gets annoyed. What's this guy smiling at me for? You see what you look like? He takes his Gemara and he starts to learn. It only took a few seconds for him to think to himself, what am I, crazy? It's a Sarsimei Tshuva. I'm going to see my Rebbe. I have a Gemara in front of me. And I'm upset that the guy next to me, because he smiled at me, and he looks funny. What kind of ugly person am I? He closes Gemara, he sticks out his hand to the person next to him, and he introduces himself, Shalom Aleichem, Aleichem Shalom, and he starts to talk to him. Finishes talking. Okay, after five ten minutes, he felt that he was Matthias, the person, although the person didn't know anything, and he wants to get back to his Gemara. He says, "Oh, you know, your Kibber's coming. I better get back to my Gemara." Another fellow says, "Yeah, that's right. Your Kibber's coming. This young Kibber, this is going to be an easy young Kibber." So the person looks at him and says, "This will be an easy young Kibber. Isn't every young Kibber the same?" He says, that's a long story. He says, "That's on the bus. I have time." He says, okay. He says, I grew up in the Soviet Union. And in the Soviet Union, I used to go and I had to work very hard. 
And on the side, I would try to help people keep mitzvahs, which was a very dangerous thing. And one time they found out, I was brought to court, I was found guilty, and they sent me to 10 years hard labor in Siberia. And I came there in Siberia, there's nowhere to run, I had to work very hard. And there's only two days off, only the two national holidays. And that's it. I had to work on Yantiv, I had to work on Shabbos, I had no choice. But I decided, no matter what, I'm going to fast on Yom Kippur. And it got closer and closer to Yom Kippur, my friend said, you're not allowed to fast. You won't be able to work, they're going to kill you. You're not allowed to fast. So I don't care, I'm fasting. It was Arab Yom Kippur, I was speaking to some friends, and I came up with an idea. Someone said, you know, if you go to the infirmary, you don't have to work that day. So after work in Arabian Kippur, I started screaming and yelling, my tooth hurts, my tooth kills. And I went to the doctor, I went to the infirmary, the doctor, who was probably, doesn't know anything about medicine, took pliers and I pointed to the tooth and he yanked out my tooth without anything. And of course I was in terrible pain, but I got to stay in the infirmary that day. I didn't have to work, and I fasted that Yom Kippur. Well, the next year, as I came close to Yom Kippur, I decided to do the same thing. And I did the same thing for six years. Every year they yanked out a tooth, but every year I didn't have to work, and I didn't have to eat. I got to fast in Yom Kippur. And then something happened, we were all freed. And then a few years later, I got to come to Eretz Here in Israel, I don't have to worry about fasting. It's an easy fast. Now this fellow who felt like a very, very small person looks and he sees the smile. Except this time he sees such a holy, beautiful smile. What changed? He saw the neshama of a person. He saw how great somebody can come. And that is what we have to do. Anytime we see somebody, we see somebody, you don't like him for whatever reason, he doesn't look like you, he looks funny, he taught, whatever it is that the person does, you have no idea how holy his neshama is. And therefore, if we want Hashem to treat us like a parent, we have to act like His children.
Just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.